0: Hey, everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path, and you can join at the $5 level to get behind-the-scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons-only podcast. Join at the new $20 level, and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revisionpath. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a huge issue. I asked UX researcher Becca Hare how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates.
1: I think that a diverse workforce is crucial because we're designing for such a diverse world. We are designing for two billion people and counting, and if we don't have the diversity internally that's reflected externally, um, then we're just not going to be able to build products that really resonate and, and improve people's lives.
0: Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Glitch is looking for the following positions a full stack engineer, a front end developer, a community health engineer, and a DevOps engineer. These positions are for their New York City office, but remote candidates are more than welcome to apply. If you're looking to diversify your designer dev team, then post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you throughout our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, with new ones popping up every day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on making something awesome today at glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. Mailchimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Did you check out their new rebrand, by the way, with the bold yellow and the graphic illustrations and the new typefaces and stuff? I think it's pretty dope. I mean, I've heard other things, but I think it's pretty dope. Anyway, what's even better about MailChimp is that they make innovative and beautiful products that serve millions of customers around the world. And even better, they give you the tools and the resources that you need to find your people, grow your business, and make smarter choices. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview, we're talking to Courtney Wilburn, Lead DevOps Engineer at The Wirecutter. Let's start the show.
1: All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Courtney Wilburn, and I am the Lead DevOps Engineer at The Wirecutter.
0: Now for listeners that might not know what The Wirecutter is, can you give a brief explanation?
1: Sure. The Wirecutter is a site. It was it had been independent for a few years, and now it's owned by the New York Times and it mainly does product reviews for variety in a variety of different types everything from from travel products to baking and all that kind of stuff personal home goods and it makes recommendations for for folks who maybe you're uninitiated to they want to know maybe what the best thing would be if they, you know, if they couldn't afford a very expensive version of that type of product, or even if they wanted to for to the top of the line, and, and it gives a very, 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 very detailed Reviews of products from a a journalistic angle. So Mm. the folks that are writing the reviews come at it in a a very, very studied, very journalistic angle, as opposed to, you know, an attempt to force someone to buy a specific product from a specific manufacturer, you know, research-based, you know, fact-finding-based recommendations for, for a variety of products.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Wirecut. I'm a big fan of just like products... I'd say data-driven, research-driven product sites like that. Like I think of the Wirecutter, Consumer Reports. I don't know if Consumer right. Reports is still around, but America's Test Kitchen. I love America's Test Kitchen. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but like in terms of of uh like the product reviews, I've been a big fan of the Wirecutter for a long time. So I kind of have a question. This one of these uh, questions are from our audience. You know. The wire cutter is like a family of sites. So I know there's the wire cutter, which is just the, the basic, or I guess the home website. There's also one called, I think, sweet home. Mm-hmm. That's, that's more towards like, I guess home and home and lifestyle type products and stuff. Mm-hmm. With those kinds of sites, what does it take to keep those up? Because I would imagine a site like that is very popular, probably gets, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of hits a day. And especially now that you are, part of the new york times that probably just amplifies the amount of visitors that you get how do you keep a really popular site like that
1: up i mean so yeah so the so the sweet home was recently sort of merged like content wise was merged into the wire cutter so it's now sitting under one one main umbrella but the question is still the same so like how do we keep a site like that running? You know, we have, there are certainly a lot of, it's a, it's an incredibly popular site. It's becoming more so. And, and especially since the acquisition by the New York Times, there have been articles that have happened in like joint articles that have happened between the New York Times and the Wirecutter that have sort of driven more traffic to the Wirecutter. And to keep it up, you know, you do, there's anything that you would do to keep any popular site up. You know, you have to, to make sure that you have things in place that to make sure that procedures in place to make sure that if it's a busy shopping period of time, say like Black Friday, that you're able to handle all of the site views and that you, you do things. There are things that you can do on the data side, things that you can do, you know, the data present or, and on the presentation side to make sure that the, that the viewing experience is consistent for viewers and that you're not getting any delays or any problems and that just is you know careful monitoring and then you know being and understanding what those potential thresholds could be if you think oh, okay the the traffic's getting busy there are ways that we can mitigate the increased viewership or increased page views by using you know tools to to scale or to scale up to accommodate any increased so that, so that things don't crash. And Mm then there's, you know, just some of the other, other things like just general things like caching, like, there's just a lot of different things you can do to, to balance out, to keep the, the experience consistent. And a lot of that just is, is making sure that you know what those thresholds are, you know, the capabilities of the site in low traffic days and the capabilities of the site in high traffic days and just keep an eye on, on how that changes and make sure things are consistent. And obviously there's like, there's some of those things like you know monitoring if something if something starts to look amiss you notice something that starts to look amiss you know you on the performance side for end users you do what you can to fix that as soon as possible so
0: yeah no it's, it's, I'm glad that you kind of mentioned you know kind of some of the the secret sauce I guess in a way not mm-hmm. super secret but sort of the behind the right. scenes information like I I work for a software company and you know I can kind of see in our shared Slack channel whenever something happens with the website where something gets slow or something goes down, like seeing them be able to hop to it and really get in there and fix the problem pretty easily. It kind of seems a little magical in a way, like being able to know all the (laughs) ins and outs of the system and then be able to react whenever things like that happen.
1: Yeah, no, I think part of the, what makes it magical, some of that stuff, it's metrics, really. You have to know what the site looks like on a normal day, what the site looks like on, on certain busy days, and then just make you know keep an eye on that make sure that you are getting alerted if something looks weird so you can hop on it maybe before before there's a visual problem or an experiential problem to users you have to get a sense of how things perform normally first and there there's just a lot of data collection for lack of a better term in those stages make sure that you know what it you can get a sense of what it looks like before things change for end users before the experience changes or degrades so it's Data collection, a lot of watching, and then, you know, knowing ahead of time how you would mitigate any of those issues if it happened and what particular problems end up looking like, either from, you know, a, a logs like logs in your like server log end or experiential end, and what those would look like if a, a, problem, a specific type of problem presented itself. Yeah, so it's just like a lot of watching and waiting. You have to be patient. In addition to you have to be patient and proactive at the same time. It's kind of it's there's a certain mix of skills there that can keep you on your toes. I guess with that
0: information, what is a typical day like for you?
1: It varies. I mean, there are some there are mix of project based work depending on things that we may want to to do or expand or things that we may want to you know create or things that other engineers are creating and, and supporting them. And also, I liken DevOps and sort of site reliability engineering and the the all the affiliated fields to if you're a contractor, you're building a house. I would liken DevOps to being like the the plumber or the electrician. You don't know most of the time, most folks don't know exactly what you do until something goes wrong. But you're keeping the lights on, you're keeping the water running, you're keeping things running smoothly so that if the internet was a house you know you're adding new pipes if someone wants a a sink or someone wants their their sink fixed or you're making sure that the water flows downward into the into the drain and not back up at you that's kind of you know it's a combination of those things and and when when something goes wrong you know if you're not doing what you need to do it, your issue becomes very very public facing
0: yeah
1: so you know if the electricity doesn't work it's obvious if the plumbing doesn't work it's it's obvious so that's kind of how I, I think of my job. you know from, when I try to explain exactly what it is that I do to to other folks, that's kind of the closest approximation. Okay. But part of it is tool building as well. So you want to make sure that engineers have what they like other engineers have what they need. It can be either to roll out new features or continue to make the site or the application better without things kind of getting in their way. There are a lot of concerns about getting things from like your local computer to the internet that you, you want to make that process for engineers as smooth as possible. So sometimes that's tool building, sometimes that's clearing any sort of, that's tool building, that's tool bolstering, and sometimes that's building additional things yourself or, or just making the process a little bit more plain, abstracting things. There's a lot there. (laughs) Now, you spoke about
0: engineers. Are there other teams that you have to work with on a regular basis?
1: Right. Yeah. So there are other engineering teams, engineering teams that are responsible for different aspects of what you see when you go to the wire cutter. And so, you know, those teams are working on projects and sometimes my intervention is, is needed or my expertise is needed to help them get things set up or find a way to most easily deploy code, that kind of thing. So a typical day for me varies. There are some days that are I'm documenting a lot and there are some days that I'm working on building tools and there are some days where I'm just actually facilitating getting people what they need to to get something up and running or continue some keep something continue running or it's just like brainstorming an issue that someone's seeing maybe it hasn't it's not forward facing, but they're seeing something locally that could potentially cause a problem in production. How do we head this off? How do we fix make this not a problem for when a new feature or something else is launched to the site?
0: Now I know that there are probably, you know, tools that you end up using on a on a day-to-day basis. And our audience is mostly designers. I think we have some developers kind of in general, without giving, you know, too much in terms of like proprietary stuff. What are some type of tools that you would use as a
1: DevOps engineer? I mean, a lot of the, you know, there are a lot of command line tools that I weigh heavily on just, I mean, if I'm committing actual code or like writing infrastructure, like web infrastructure as code, you know, there's, you know, version control software there's, but I tend to, I tend to stay in the terminal for most of my sort of like, if I'm writing code, most of my stuff happens, happens there. And then just a lot of a lot of command line tools. And I like to I like to write aliases for stuff that I end up doing repeatedly. Like my a signal for me to build a tool for something myself or build an alias or or make a shortcut to something is repetitive motion. If I'm writing the same commands in the same order, set of commands in the same order over and over, if I'm so I try to I try to make it write an alias so I that process can happen a little bit more quickly. So I end up sometimes writing tools and like in bash scripts or, you know, shell scripts to make things go a little bit more quickly. I try to automate my own sort of local process as much as I can. And then if I ever use text editors, I think for a while I was using Atom, and I switched maybe three months ago to, to using VS code and That took a little bit, that was a a bit of a learning curve, but I like keeping myself on my toes. So I'll use that if I feel like using a text editor, but for the most part, I stay in the, in the command line. I use the Z shell command wise, just because there's so much more there. It has syntax highlighting inside of the terminal, which is also like pretty cool. Other tools I use, I can't quite say because you know i don't want to sort of reveal anything about you know specific to architecture but generally i can say to you know the the site's architecture but i generally i like if there are GUI tools i try to look for the companion on the command line because i feel more comfortable using command line tools for just generally so so you mentioned
0: that switch kind of from adam over to vs code how do you evaluate new tools that you want to use
1: I try them at home for a little bit first you know just try to let me let me see if i the same little hello world bit of thing if i if i like using it and i I can make that and i understand you know shortcuts or whatever i'll test it out for a little bit at home and then say okay i think that that works well enough and i can get the hang of it quickly enough to sort of incorporate it into my actual professional endeavors And, and then i'll i'll switch over to it. And sometimes it's just out of, you know, sometimes it just happens out of frustration. If a tool just isn't working for me, the either the way it used to, or the way I would like it to, if something in my own sort of workflow has changed, I'll make a switch pretty quickly. Um, it doesn't really take much for me to, I try not to have any sort of loyalty to any sort of specific framework or tool and just do what works best for me. And, and, you know, my evaluation period varies depending on how urgent the need to change something is.
0: (laughs) Now you're uh, based out of Philadelphia. I'm curious Mm -hmm. to kind of know what's the tech community like there. I was just in Philly back in July for like a podcasting conference. It was my first time in Philly. I really like Philly. Yeah, Um, Philly's great. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious to know, like, what's the tech community like there for you? Are you kind of involved in it in any sort of way?
1: So to varying degrees of involvement, but the, and I would say generally the, the tech scene in Philly is very, very robust. I'd have to say one of the things that Philly has going for it is that Philly is one of the largest cities that has a high number of people of color graduates from local colleges and universities that stay. And that has sort of helped both in the tech community and in other industries as well. So it's just a, there's just a really robust, like just generally professional community here. And the tech community specifically is very welcome to people from all walks of life and, you know, traditional and non-traditional paths to get to tech. And there are lots of meetups for just about any group of folks that want to sort of get together and talk about issues around tech, either from from civic tech to, you know, to issues specific to underrepresented groups who work in the industry. And those it's welcoming, I think, to a number of folks. It's welcoming to everybody, I think. But you know, I think there's some of those there's agencies, there's companies, there's it's all over the map in terms of, you know, what is able to you know, people can kind of get their toes into the industry in a variety of different ways, either mm-hmm. working in consultancies or, or agencies or a company. So, but yeah, and there's just, there's something, there's something for everybody. And there are people who, and there are companies based here that, that are growing, which is cool too. And, you know, the headquarters for technically are in Philadelphia. So we're uniquely positioned to have a lot of journalistic, like reporting, like, reporting on the ins and outs of the industry that usually only exists in larger tech cities like San Francisco or New York. So I think that's that's been pretty cool too.
0: Nice. Now, yeah. speaking of kind of non-traditional paths, how did you first get into technology? Like how did you get into this whole kind of DevOps scene in
1: general? My journey to tech and. In- general was, is, is not quite traditional. I I have a degree in anthropology and physical anthropology specifically, which has to deal with human evolution. And I specifically was sort of was focused on the evolution of dentition, the evolution of teeth, Uh, (laughs) which is, yeah, which is like not has nothing to do with, or at least on the surface, it has nothing to do with technology, but I was a tech hobbyist. And I got into coding well before, College and it was something that was fun for me. Uh, it was like it was an outlet. It was something that like I'm a terrible. I, I can't draw, and I'm kind of more scientifically inclined. My dad was an amateur artist, and my mom is a my mom is a chemist. And so, you know, I feel like for me at least. Coding is sort of a nice little intersection between like art and science, Mm and that you get to create something with your hands sort of that is, that is new and that can be used in this novel that can actually be seen or be utilized or experienced. But it was just a hobby for me. And after I graduated from college, I, thought about, uh, you know, usually if you're doing something in anthropology, the next step is academia. It didn't seem like a viable route for me. I contemplated dental school and, but tech and doing stuff had just called me. I had spent summers in high school working in labs, doing stuff related to to coding, doing the technological side of that, doing imaging and prototyping of amino acids and, and DNA using code and that to me it kept calling me back. You know, I was doing stuff for fun while I was in college. I took some computer science courses but nothing nothing that could have been ever been considered a like continuous formal education in technology. And then I just I largely was like let me just I had taught myself database stuff first and 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 web stuff in addition to that, you know, the early HTML stuff and and By the time I got into college or after college, when I graduated, I was still coding on the side. It was more application coding and not web. At some point, it seemed like, and it seemed like in the the early aughts, at some point when I was in college, it seemed like all programming was destined to be something related to the Internet. And so, you know, I started Digging into, into that a little bit more and, you know, have largely been self-taught, teaching myself different programming languages and just staying on top of trends and reading a lot and then just, you know, trying stuff out at home and then seeing, oh, let me just try this. And then I was able to get my first job doing something actually technical about 12 years ago, doing like application building about 12 years ago. But in terms of DevOps, the DevOps thing sort of started happening. Oh, maybe four or five years ago, and I first started learning about continuous integration and continuous delivery. And there's something about it. There's something about the the like the building aspect of it that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure why. I don't know. If there's some, there's some there's probably I could dig there a little bit and try to figure out why, but I really don't know. I don't know why Um, there's nothing that resonated with me. And so before I fully sort of shifted into DevOps, I always was making sure I took some of those responsibilities on. I want to see how something gets from you making a a site on your computer to actually being somewhere on the internet, like what's involved, You know, understanding DNS and understanding all these other sorts of uh, the things the things that go into making a site actually like presented to you and to your face. And that's from how sites get, you know, now a lot of things are getting compiled and built more so than they used to be for the web. But understanding all of that, that stuff was just so fun to me and, and how it got there. So in helping people get it there um, and that's what made that DevOps specifically exciting.
0: I mean, it sounds like just the curiosity of finding out those like integral parts and how they, you know, kind of make a react. I was always going to make like a chemical reactions kind of pun to it, but yeah, since <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your mom was a chemist, but no, it sounds like that. Like you have, you know, there's DNS and there's the whole stack and how all those things kind of come together to present a website into a browser to the world. Like knowing that yeah. behind the scenes information is, uh, I'm interested in that stuff too. My master's degree is actually in, uh, telecommunications management. So we had to study a lot of that sort of back end kind of stuff to figure out how things are presented to the web in general, because like you, I came into this industry very much as a hobbyist. Like I was, you know, just designing websites and doing stuff on Photoshop on the side. And my degree is in math and I didn't want to go into academia (laughs) because once you get a degree in something like that, the choices are teach or go back to school. And And neither one of those appealed to me at the time. And eventually I was able to kind of turn it into a career. So I I empathize with that a lot. I mean, and I think that kind of is what, and maybe you can speak to this as well, like what keeps DevOps interesting to you? Like what is, what about the field makes you want to kind of still be a part of it?
1: I think the thing that makes me want to still be a part of it is that there's always a way to do something to get more efficient and make it better. Like just sort of a, a personal or professional development, there's a sort of industrial development there. There are things that can change and things that you can ways that you can make things more efficient or make things better, or make things run more smoothly. Or you know, when the process becomes is complicated to get something from your local computer to a website. but it feels easy to other engineers to do that. when the concerns of how it gets there go away, and the main concern of a of another engineer, developer, or even a designer is exactly what they're gonna do and not how it's gonna get there, that makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel I feel like I'm doing something right when, you know, someone can just say, Oh, all I had to do was push a button or just go to my terminal real quick and sit, you know, type in this little quick thing and then This is on the site exactly how I envisioned it. This looks, this experience is exactly how I designed it to be. And that satisfies me. The fact and the, you know, the fact that there's an opportunity to learn more. There's always an opportunity to learn more. And then there's always something new, a new tool that makes things better that's out there. And just having the ability personally to, to satisfy an intellectual curiosity about all those tools and how they work. How do you keep up to date with all of that stuff? I read a lot. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I read a lot. If I can't attend a conference on something, I'll watch talks on some of the the new and exciting things that are that are out there. You know, I I subscribe to newsletters that kind of stay on top of you know industry trends and some of that's just, and, and also just like being participating in communities. You know, either via Slack or what have you that where people are discussing tools they use and, and how they use them and why they use them or alternatives to what they're using. That's how I stay on top of things. I mean, it's just, you just have to constantly read and that's, that's fine because I enjoy that quite a bit. I enjoy just, I think anything that sort of satisfies my hunger for more knowledge is I know I'm kind of moving in the right direction. Okay.
0: Are there any like particular sources that you go to? (laughs)
1: There's a newsletter this week in DevOps. Some of it, a lot of the times I will just read changes in documentation for some of the tools that I use. I actually like reading reference books. You know, sometimes sometimes people don't. But I actually like reading reference books and tend to read reference books. Like a majority of my sort of, I guess you wouldn't call it pleasure reading, but like sort of professional type reading is, you know, or reference books. And then, you know, I'll give myself an opportunity to actually try some of that stuff out. Like practically, like if I'm futzing around on like a home computer, I will, you know, test something out and say, oh, yeah, that actually does work or if I want to play with like a new technology, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll read, I'll read a reference book about it. I'll read some of the, like, you know, not necessarily a textbook, but just one of the provided, like, like buy an ebook on it and and read it. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Are there any like skills or, or knowledge? Because like I've said before, we have a lot of designers and developers that are, are listening and they may not necessarily be in DevOps, but they may work with DevOps teams at work. Like I do. Right. Is there any kind of specific skills or knowledge that you wish they knew to be better collaborators with DevOps people?
1: I would say, I mean, this is going to, I hope it's not cliche, but some of those things aren't, they're, they're not technical skills. They're what people would call quote unquote soft skills. The things just being an effective communicator, being clear in your communication, always being aware that there's something that may be clear to you that isn't clear to designer or developer process-wise, in being able to explain, okay, perhaps you've designed it this way, but based on maybe limitations you have around your stack, why some of these things may or may not be possible and what you can do to make them possible or how you can can work together. So I think communic- effective communication is probably the top thing. I worked at uh, an agency for years before I was working before I worked at the wire cutter and I had to work a lot more closely with designers there. And I think the one thing that, that I took out of that was that everyone learns and interprets information very, very differently and just tailor what you need to get across to as much as you can to how people understand information. And just as there isn't a single best way to get something, get a website up There's no single best way to communicate with other people. You have to sort of meet someone where they are and Mm -hmm. understand their perspective a little bit and that some of the things that may be concerns that may be important to you as a DevOps person may not be as important to a designer or a different type of engineer and it's your responsibility to either bring someone to that understanding or to compromise a bit and try to find a way to, to work together better. I think communication is the number one thing there and just patience. I mean, I think that sometimes it can be hard to, to describe something you're seeing, like, you know, if you're doing UI tests or you have a, you have a prototype up and it's not behaving the way that you were expecting it to behave, but it, it did maybe when you and when, if you as a designer and a developer were, were working on it prior to it being presented on the web, if you're a DevOps person, l- listen to what they're saying and try to get to the heart of what they're saying, what the functionality is, and don't try to force a designer or developer to, to speak on your terms. It's, I think it's a responsibility of, of folks who are working further behind the scenes to be able to understand the breadth of their stack, either from all the way from the, from the, the user experience and the interface to you know the things that people may not see for you to have a more holistic view of of the stack and to be able to converse well about all those things. Communication is key. Yeah, I, yeah. Communication is absolutely. I
0: tell that the designers all the time, particularly writing. It's key, you know. Certainly, I think when you're talking to people, it can be a little bit easier sometimes. But definitely, if you're sending emails back and forth, or you're doing stuff with Slack, like being able to really accurately describe and get your point across is super important.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times it can be hard to with, I mean, folks who are very engineering focused, how much more effective you can get your point across if you're a good writer, being able to put your thoughts down in a concise and clear way is priceless. It, It really is. Now I do have a tools based question. Again, like I said, we, okay, uh, we let some of our audience know about
0: it. And so one of them was kind of, I guess, poking around your GitHub account and saw that you had, (laughs) saw that you forked a repo with a textmate language pack for Chuck. And so two questions, I guess, about Chuck. The first one, I guess, is, you know, what do you think about it? And do you still do any kind of creative or live coding with it?
1: So I haven't done any live coding with it for some time. I, th- I think I let that repo go a little bit stale, unfortunately. I do like the idea of sort of y- of using co- of combining code with with artistic endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what sort of drew me to the idea of Chuck is like intersection of music and and coding. I thought that was like super cool. And so when I forked that repo, I was building the Atom. Uh, editor plugin for that based on the the TextMate one, um, and I was I was rebuilding the Atom one so that people could, if they, regardless of what IDE they were using, and some of the other IDEs at the time didn't exist, so you know someone could write, someone could do what they wanted to do with the language and support. You know, I wanted to be able to support other folks who were doing a creative. Uh, it was more of my just desire to to support folks in creative endeavors if they wanted to code and do music. So that was sort of my motivation behind doing that, and then be able to 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 play around with it a little bit myself, which was a lot of fun. I haven't done something with it in in a while. I should probably revisit that repo though.
0: <laughs> yeah, for for people that are that might be confused, like what is Chuck? It's I'm actually looking it up right now. It's a programming language. For real-time sound synthesis and music creation, so I guess you can, kind of, type out music. I suppose <laughs> that's what it's yeah. Sort of I mean, you like. can
1: sort of live. You can sort of live compose. Like if you, I think it's more used for like eight-bit music, electronic music, to you know, sort of live, live synth, like write synth patches in real time live coding generally can make me a little bit nervous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's one of those things. It's, it's much like if you're performing music, it's kind of on that same level of the nerves are because you care. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So you want, you want to do, you want to do something good. So that's, you know, I haven't done anything with it sort of, you know, and I haven't performed using it, you know, the, the, I've mostly given talks and I think the most I've done with live coding kind of recently was with machine learning was writing, uh, I wrote a, I used a neural network to write new Prince lyrics based on a library of old Prince lyrics, which was really, yeah, really. (laughs) Uh, Oh my goodness. yeah. Yeah. It was pretty fun. So yeah, I did, I used a torch framework to write a recurrent neural network and I, I fed it, let's see, I think 750 songs, but I started off in chunks of chunks of 250 Prince songs and fed all the lyrics in mm-hmm. and then tried to teach it sort of poetic structure. And that's kind of harder to do because Prince's like sort of writing poetic style was not consistent enough. I mean, because he was so innovative, a huge Prince fan, but yeah. Wasn't consistent from song to song, so it was a lot harder. Like songs that he wrote for other people tended to have more of like a rhyming couplet, traditional poetry type structure, and then songs he did for but songs he did for him himself, he performed himself, were tended to be less structured as as his career went on. Mm-hmm. There were some of the more you know things where his like rhyme structure was consistent or like you know beat and cadence structure was consistent, but that sort of was changed a lot as his as his career went on so it was interesting to see what the neural network spat out a lot of it was gibberish and pretty funny Uh but um you know as you can you can kind of tune how interesting or how close to or away from or how creative the neural network would get when generating new lyrics and the effects were were mostly just for my entertainment but pretty good please tell me this is (laughs) online somewhere it is. It's in my GitHub repo. Okay, I, have a, right. I, have a, I have a public GitHub repo with it. Some of the, I can send you a link to it. It was just a lot of fun. You know, I wanted to to mess with neural networks a little bit. And so that was my way of of digging in. I was already familiar with Python. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't much of a stretch. But I got to learn Lua a little bit in the process, which was fun.
0: Yeah, I would, so, I, would, I mean, I would love to see it. I would also, I work with, with Anil Dash, who was like, a oh, yeah. huge Prince fan. I'm sure he would love yeah. to to see that too. So yeah. <laughs> so kind of switching gears here for a little bit. I know we focused a lot on the work that you're doing at the wire cutter. We focused a lot kind of on your technical background. And sure. we're we're doing this interview during our kind of LGBTQ month. And so we were talking to, you know, designers and developers that are in that community. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, does your identity kind of inform the work that you do or you don't do? I mean, it seems like a lot of it is is behind the scenes. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to know about that.
1: Right. I mean, I think in general, my lens is, you know, I sit at the intersection of a number of communities. I'm a woman. I'm a queer woman. I'm Black. I think in general, I try to not do work that would be harmful to any of those communities. But Specifically, I don't. But my exact job isn't isn't necessarily focused on being queer, though I do in my spare time, you know, try to support communities that are organizing around that and keep them safe online as much as I can. But when it comes to just bringing myself to to work, I'm out at work. I don't think I've ever been in the closet professionally. Okay. <laughs> so. I think, you know, I have a very sort of, I wouldn't, I would say not traditionally feminine appearance. And so I didn't really, if I wanted to be comfortable and be able to do my job to the best of my ability, I couldn't hide any of that, any of that part of myself and still be effective because I would be, I didn't want any of my professional time to be worried about what would happen if I got you know, if there were any sort of employment implications on my being out. So I, you know, have been out for the entirety of my professional career, you know, so I think, because of that, I don't really have, I'm not really aware of the extent to which that has held me back. Because perhaps, you know, if someone saw something in uh, extracurriculars on my resume, and that passed me up, I am naive to that. But I would say that, like, not doing active harm to those communities, to the, any of the communities in which I sit at the intersection. I I always keep that in my mind. I don't want to. I don't want to put anything out there that could harm Black people, or harm mm-hmm. queer people, or harm or harm women. So, you know, I, I always sort of bring myself to that. You know, I don't. I don't pretend like I'm not married to a woman. I don't pretend like I'm not that I. You know, am not a member of those communities that I don't you know i don't i'm not shy about that at all
0: yeah do you find that this i guess the tech community the devops community i guess in general do you find that it's welcoming okay. to someone like you to a
1: black queer I would woman? say i would say you know in general i mean i th- i think i think just in professional life as a black person working professionally as a queer person working professionally i feel like there is you know there's a level of that need of having to work harder to, to, to be considered on equal footing for, you know, as your peers. I think there's, I certainly have felt that in the past, but I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't think that it's like, I certainly do my best to uplift folks who are more marginalized than me in the work that I'm doing. So I don't know. So, hmm. What
0: advice would you give to somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps? Like you said, you've had this non-traditional path, studying anthropology and then kind of taking a hobby and turning it now into a career. What advice would you give to someone that wants to, I don't know, maybe be where you are right now?
1: Uh, I mean, just keep keep working at it. I mean, excuse me, I think a lot of there's, um, there's a lot that's out there about women in tech and imposter syndrome that I feel like doesn't always quite fit well when it comes to someone who is sort of who comes who's not only a woman who is also queer who is also who's also black people talk about not feeling like you stack up to other folks and maybe you, you know you'd be uncovered as some sort of fraud I think the thing that has always helped me get past that is having a very clear understanding of what I'm capable of. And I would say to other people who are trying to get started, just have a clear understanding of what you're capable of and what you can do and how you can can get there and just as corny of a adage it is to to work hard and focus on your dreams. Find your community of like-minded folks if you're if there's something that you want to do and you're interested in, you know, find a mentor that can sort of guide you through and tell you what some of the pitfalls might be where it's going to get difficult so that you can anticipate that. I think that's, that has always been important for me is finding, finding someone who is willing to shepherd you either, either professionally or emotionally or otherwise, however you need to be supported through your journey. And, you know, so that you can stay grounded and still, I mean, I think there's always, there's a level of self-reflection that I think can help just saying like, where am I, like, am I on my, on my way to achieving what I want to do and and how do I get there? I feel like mentors can help you put some of that stuff in perspective and also like help you look back at what you've actually done. Like that's good. I think sometimes, you know, when you're trying to get someone, you're working really hard toward a goal, it can be hard to see how much progress you've made and mentors can help you look back and say, no, you've actually come pretty far. This is what you've done to get to this point. And here's perhaps what you might need to do to keep going, to stay on that path. And then being open once you get to a certain point to mentoring other people, but always still staying open to being mentored yourself. There's always a way that you can improve yourself and find someone who's willing to share knowledge and be a good listener. So, Who have been some of your mentors? So professionally, there's just been a variety of folks. I was fortunate enough to, when I started get, doing technical roles, I've had mainly women as supervisors who, and other other women who are working in, you know, technology and and some outside of who have been able to, you know, just sort of give me guidance on, on life and just be supportive. When I was in undergrad and was studying anthropology. Janet Monge, who she's an anthropology professor at Penn. And, you know, she was, you know, just sort of instrumental in just being supportive of, you know, any career choice, even if I didn't want to do anthropology. Um, And Rebecca Mercury, who was a, who at the time was a um, computer science professor at Bryn Mawr, um, where I went. And uh, she has, you know, just modeling that you can actually make a career out of, you know, out of technology and be a woman and kind of carve a unique path for yourself. Like she is an expert on voting, like voting technologies. I think it was just really important for me to see women out there doing that. Like personal mentors, like, you know, I, before I kind of dove deep into tech, I was working, at, I worked at a nonprofit and I was fortunate enough to cross paths with a man named John Bell who, changed my life. Yeah. So supportive and teaching me about how the world worked outside of the academic black middle-class bubble Mm -hmm. that I had grown up in.
0: Have there been any compromises that you had to make either in your career or like even in your personal life to be Mm -hmm. where
1: you are now? I try not to think of those so much like compromises so much as you know, steps, really. I I can't really think of, you know, compromises I've made around myself being a queer woman. You know, I haven't had to, you know, be in the closet, fortunately, and I haven't had to participate in anything that is destructive towards any of the communities that I belong to, which has been good, or like actively destructive. In terms of compromises, I think in general, like, I haven't been in Philly the entirety of my life and I think sometimes um, like you know I've moved and I sometimes it, the adjustment for moving and and finding a new job in a new city can be hard but I wouldn't necessarily call that a compromise. I think there are times when I'd been ready to pivot and I didn't realize that I was ready to pivot in taking on different aspects of technology or even just moving away from trying like thinking that perhaps I wanted to do dental school or social services to going into turning a hobby into a professional endeavor. But I've been fortunate in that regard that I haven't had to make any major compromises or, or do anything that I feel like was where I was sort of taking an L in order to get here. But I don't think that's like, you know, I don't think that's a, a a normal thing. I think a lot of people have had to compromise to get to where they are. So I'm not saying that that's like a thing. And I haven't, I'm also acknowledging that hasn't been like, that doesn't mean that like it's all been, you know, walking on a bed of roses to get to this point, you know. Right, right. I think I I think I I've had to fight for myself and advocate for myself more than I thought I would, but you know, I don't think that's unusual for a black woman. Okay. <laughs> so, it's having to advocate for yourself more, like you have to be your own cheerleader sometimes professionally.
0: Yeah.
1: More than people are going to I think when you look back through history, Black women are sort of, we're more behind the scenes than, than we are and than our stories get told. And keeping in mind that I had to advocate for myself and having to, to compromise, well, I probably, you know, as much as I've contributed to the success of something, I, my name probably won't get mentioned mm. in the thank yous and knowing that. Have you ever dealt with burnout? I feel like I've been really close. But I, I, I feel like true burnout would happen when I lost the love for what I'm doing um, and just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. I haven't been burnt out. I feel like I've gotten close. What have and you what
0: done? Has, yeah, I was going to say, what have you done at those times when it's happened? <laughs> yeah. I guess when you felt like you're
1: like approaching the red zone, you know? Right. I think what has helped me has just sort of been in, in, involved with Excuse me, with communities associated with tech, but also like representing underrepresented groups like LGBTQ folks and and black folks in tech and sort of working with with them and, and also helping and doing civic tech work, like civic like activism through tech has always been helpful to me to see that, like, there are people that need your skills and 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 like what you do can actually change the world. You know, that has been. Helpful. I think just being able to know when to take a break, and like saying like, you know what, you know, even if it's just on the project level and not on like a big, you know, macro level, just knowing when to take a break. Either knowing when to take a five minute break and or a ten minute break and take a walk or go for a run or whatever, mm-hmm. or knowing when to like be like, I need a vacation and like disconnect and like you know, like read, read trashy romance novels or whatever, and just, (laughs) (laughs) and then just not worry about any of the other things that like, you know, any of the other concerns, if it's, if it's at all possible to just like completely disconnect and just be really in the moment with something and just have, have time to just enjoy yourself and quiet. And yeah.
0: I'm not going to lie for me. That has, it has been tough. I'd say probably when well before I started where I'm at now I had my own studio for 9 years and it was it used mm-hmm. to be so hard to just disconnect from it because it's like if you're not the one running the show then nothing gets done. And right. I mean I would be in a position where I could, you know, take a break or take a vacation but would never do it because I would feel this this like guilt for doing so. And like right. for me I had to make I had to make a mental shift in how i perceive self-care so like Mm. you know how when we go to the doctor or something that you think of it like you know you have to like take a physical or if you're not feeling well or you know something happens you go to a doctor and you think about that on a on a physical level but then on a like mental and emotional level taking a vacation or taking a break i try to look at it in that same sort of a transactional sort of way Absolutely. So it's like, oh, if I'm feeling burned out and I think, oh, I need to plan a vacation, I won't hem and haw about, oh, well, I got to, I got to do this and I got to spend this money. And it's like, no, if you weren't feeling well and you had to go to the doctor, you would spend money. So what's the difference if you're feeling burned out and you need to take a vacation? It's the same absolutely. thing. Well, yeah, it's absolutely. not the same it's, thing, but i, I try to yeah, think of it in that way. You yeah, know?
1: absolutely. Taking care of yourself, even just the small acts of self-care help. Well, you know, I've within maybe the past year, sort of really gotten into skincare stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's been like a really fun diversion, like just, you know, taking time to actually take care of yourself and then seeing what the effects of that do to you. You know, um, I struggled with, 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 like, pretty intense facial acne for like a long period of time, well into my like, kind of current advanced adulthood and seeing the results of like actually taking time to like get into a skincare routine and seeing what that has done for like my appearance and then my confidence as well, because like you think, Oh, I feel like I look like an adult and not a teenager, or I feel like people are actually taking me seriously and maybe not looking at all the scars on my face. Um, and What that has, like, what that has done for me personally, and, and, you know, it it actually really does help kind of fight the sort of, you know, your inclination to just sort of like, oh, I mean, I could, I could find a better way to use my time than like doing this, like, moisturizing mask or whatever. No, just take some time, relax, do it take care of yourself you'll feel better the effects last much longer than than you know the time that you've you get out more than you put in you the, right. the effects of it last way much longer than than you know the time that you spent you know taking care of yourself
0: and and you'll certainly i think remember and look forward to those experiences more than like slaving through work trying to you know trying to be the star. I would say trying to be the star but like trying to be the workhorse to just power through it it's like no you know what I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little burnt out or even just a little crispy. Like, let me just, let me take a break and just step away for a minute and, you know, and then just approach it later. So,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, yeah, I mean there's nothing like a set of fresh eyes coming back on. I mean, even if it's just like, Oh, I need to stop for the day. Yeah. And then you just come back with a fresh eyes and you're like, Oh, that code looked like garbage, you know? Yeah. And you yeah. just think, okay, I, I, I'm glad I didn't continue to dig in this mess. Cause it's, it was the equivalent of trying to find, you know, a toothbrush in a trash can, you know, you can't like, it's going to take forever and you probably won't like it when you see it. So mm-hmm. like, you know, you just need to just take a break and, get some fresh eyes on it, even if, you know, just all the way from the micro to the macro, it's just, you know, taking care of yourself and checking in with yourself and making sure that like you're avoiding some of those things that can lead to burnout can like really helps. I think.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next uh, five years? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? Or do you have like a dream project you'd like to accomplish anything like that?
1: I think it's okay for me to not know the answer to that question Okay, <laughs> right now. I kind of don't know. I think at this point, I'm at the point in my career where I'm deciding, should I try to get on a like a heavier management track or if I'm the kind of person that wants to be like a principal architect of something? And I haven't really figured that out yet. I think I need more time under my belt to just kind of figure out what exactly it is about everything that I'm enjoying and try to see like what the best use of my talents are in that. But I've just been... I wouldn't say in the weeds, but I would say that I've been digging in on so many things that like I haven't had the, the time to like sit back and say, OK, what is what does is five years from now look like? Because even five years ago, I don't think I would have like if you would told me that I was going to be where I am. Or that even, like, you know, in the early days of Revision Path, <laughs> that I would be interviewed here. Um, I wouldn't have thought about that. I wouldn't have thought that, that, that any of those were possibilities. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just the limits of my imagination. But I'm okay with not knowing for right now and then trying to figure some of that out as I go along. I don't mind calling audibles about my that aspect of my life. Well, just
0: to kind of wrap things up here, Courtney, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work
1: online? If you're a fan of the wire cutter keep visiting the site you know we'd love it if you take a look at some of this the amazing work that some of the that the journalists do and if you want to hit up me professionally and uh, or non-professionally you can take a look at uh, i'm on twitter i'm on instagram at cj wilburn on kind of all the things i believe in a unified field theory of internet handles so i'm <laughs> i try to stake out my uh Namespace pretty quickly on on anything that's coming out. So at CJ Wilburn on all of the things, and if you want to hear me talk about prints or see pictures of my dog, I mean you can look at my Twitter feed or even some some peppered sort of mini rants about social justice or the intersections of that and technology or all those things.
0: All right, sounds good. Well, Courtney Wilburn, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to thank you really oh. just for you know sharing your. I mean, I know we focused a lot on kind of the technical aspect of what you do, which I think is important for people to know about. But then also, you know, balancing that out with the personal and knowing how you deal with burnout and even just hearing about your kind of intense passion for for this field, I think is really important for people to know. Like like one of our our audience members had said, you know, DevOps may not be a field that a lot of people really even think about, you know, as, as folks start thinking about tech, they think more Design, development, or software development, or building apps, but like DevOps is a important field, and I'm glad that you were able to kind of shed some light on that. So,
1: thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh no, it. no problem. I thank you so much for having me. I'm just a, I'm a huge fan of everything that's going on with Revision Path, and so I really, really appreciate it. It's been an honor. I really appreciate the time.
0: Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Courtney Wilburn, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Courtney and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? I mean, with an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook Design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook Design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage, glitch.com, and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you and me. Everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies use Glitch. And they're all ready to help you out if you get stuck. Ready to get started? Then visit Glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.